Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. On top of solving the mystery, you also get the fun opportunity to customize your very own luxurious estate island. You can really let your imagination run wild. You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. I enjoyed June's journey as part of my evening wind-down routine, and I'm sure you will too. It's fun, and it's great if you're looking for a good mystery. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Have you ever seriously pissed off your in-laws? A couple of years ago, I started investigating a murder in my wife's family. Why would I do something so stupid? Well, partly because I've come to suspect that the woman who was killed is haunting the house I grew up in. There was a weight in the beard like somebody was in it. I woke up because my bed was shaking. So it would be like, shake, 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 shake. But mainly because I think someone in the family might have got away with murder. And my in-laws, well, they're not exactly thrilled about it. You are deconstructing an age-old story. We're going to be more traumatized by this podcast than we were about the murder, I'll tell you that. There is going to be blowback. I'm Tristan Redman, and from Wandering in Pineapple Street Studios, this is Ghost Story, a podcast about the things that come back to haunt us. Follow Ghost Story on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Ghost Story ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Please note that this episode contains depictions of violence that some people may find disturbing. On the evening of May 14th, 2004, a woman named Demetrius Granger was driving down the turnpike in Norwich, Connecticut, when she saw a white two-story house with a for-rent sign out front. She was interested, so she called the number on the sign. Eugene Malov's wife, Joanne, answered. Joanne was a few hours away in New Hampshire, but she told Demetrius she could stop by the house now. She said, my husband's there cleaning out the place. He'll talk to you about it. The neighborhood used to be mostly residential, but this was one of the last houses standing. Suburban sprawl was creeping in and with it, big box stores and fast food restaurants. It was dark when Granger pulled up to the house. A soft light illuminated the driveway. That's where she saw Eugene Malov lying on his back. He had on a white t-shirt and khakis. He was barefoot and he was covered in blood. Horrified, Demetrius picked up her phone and immediately called an ambulance. I was coming here to look at an apartment and there's someone laying on the ground. He's not moving and he looked like he's dead. 
And I remember the radio call coming in as we were going off shift and the midnight guys were going, going getting assigned to the call. Detective Jim Curtis was a beat cop in the Norwich Police Department. He had years of experience there and in the New York Police Department. While he wasn't working the case at the time, this was the kind of call that got even the most seasoned cops' attention. When Curtis's colleagues arrived to the house, they found that Malov had been beaten so badly that he was nearly unrecognizable. It was like, you know, 47 individual, you know, strikes to the face by, by a, a tearing instrument. Who had done this? Who had killed Eugene Malov? From Q-Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, I'm David Kushner, and this is Crime Waves, Cold Truth. This is episode six, The Driveway. At 5 a.m. on May 15th, 2004, Dr. Malov's daughter, Kim, was in bed at her home in Seattle when her phone began to ring. Kim was used to waking up at all hours of the night because her young son, Matthew, was just a newborn. But still, the phone didn't usually ring this early. So that was jarring. And I remember picking up the phone and my mom was crying on the other end. And she said that she had something to tell me, but it was almost too horrible to speak. Then Kim's mom finally got the strength to tell Kim that her father had been murdered. And I just sobbed like I have never cried so hard and for so long than I did that day. Then everything after that really is just a total blur. I just felt complete and utter devastation and sadness. Kim and her husband packed a bag as quickly as possible and caught the next flight to Boston. When they arrived, the house was filled with police and people consoling each other. Detectives had no leads. They needed all the information they could get. My brother was in charge of, of talking to the police. Have you tried this? Have you thought about talking to this person again? What about the former tenants? What about this? While Malov's son Ethan handled the investigators, Kim tended to her family. She especially worried for her mom, Joanne. I wasn't living there, so it was like, how am I gonna like, am I gonna stay here with my mom? Is my mom gonna come with us? Like, who? What's gonna happen? You know, what am I gonna do? Dr. Malov and Joanne had been married for 33 years. They'd had hardships during his quest for cold fusion, but Joanne always supported him. And after his death, she was willing to make a rare appearance when she went on Coast to Coast AM to talk about his murder. He worked Monday through Sunday. He was always at work. It was kind of funny. We would we would sometimes make a date to go out on a Saturday evening, but it would be not at 6 o'clock as most people go out. It would be <laughs> at 10. <laughs> By then, the conspiratorial Coast to Coast episode, the one that pushed the theory about shadowing nefarious forces being at work, had already aired. Host George Norrie asked Joanne about the speculation. There are many who will say that because of the kind of work he was involved in, looking for alternative fuel to help this planet, 
that maybe this murder may have uh, had something to do with that. Uh, can you shed any light on that, or was it just a foiled robbery attempt? Do uh, you mean that, are you referring to the um, rumors of conspiracy? That's exactly what George Norrie was referring to. Well, of course, I have spoken with the detectives who are working on this case. They've told me that there is no evidence of a conspiracy. I know I can say that, but I shouldn't say any more, really. The Norwich Police Department had sure enough heard about the conspiracies by this point. People in his field would call in, you know, had people made threats against him and... Detective Jim Curtis wasn't working on the case at this time, but he would become very familiar with the case files later. Yeah, then we had a couple psychics and, you know, they they were doing their psychic stuff. These callers weren't just random people either. Some of them knew Dr. Malov, like this repeat caller who claimed to be associated with the Los Alamos National Laboratory. He talked about another murder. Maybe it was in Arizona or New Mexico. This caller, by the way, was not Dr. Edmund Storms, but someone else. It was a homicide out there, and he had said how, you know, Malov was one of many scientists that were killed because of their knowledge of alternative energy sources. And he had said how these police departments screw all these cases up and so on. You know, he always came up with a good story. Investigators had their work cut out for them. They needed evidence. And right now, they didn't have any. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. And during the holiday season... There's a lot happening, gift giving, traveling, staycations, whatever it is, dealing with family, a lot of stresses to manage. And why not get some help doing that? Uh, It's always helped for me over the years. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's online. It's made to be super easy and flexible, and you can really fit it into your schedule. So in this season of giving, give yourself what you need with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash CWCT today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash CWCT. Everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker and search for hidden clues to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder. Engage your observation skills to quickly uncover key pieces of information that lead to chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Where will each new chapter take you? June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story taking you back to the glamour of the 1920s with a diverse cast of characters. Each new scene takes you further through a thrilling murder mystery story that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. On top of solving the mystery, you also get the fun opportunity to customize your very own luxurious estate island. You can really let your imagination run wild. You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. 
I enjoy June's journey as part of my evening wind-down routine, and I'm sure you will too. It's fun, and it's great if you're looking for a good mystery. Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. As the Mallow family gathered in New Hampshire, Christy Frazier hunkered down at the office. She'd been in touch with Mallow's son, Ethan, who told her police would be calling her for her help. But days passed, and she was still waiting. The initial investigators did not contact me. They they would ask Ethan for things, and Ethan would know to contact me. So, you know, they 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 asked for very strange things. I was I was a little disturbed, honestly. For instance, the police had asked for a copy of every key to the infinite energy office and lab. I still to this day don't know why, but I had to run around and make copies of random keys. I didn't even know what they were for. They were just keys in Jean's desk. And I'm like, I don't know what this goes to, but I'll make a cut, you know? And so it was very odd things like that. Christy expected more work-related follow-ups after that initial strange request, but none came. It seemed odd to me. He spent the majority of his time at the office and working. And so it bothered me that they had made no effort to contact his place of business. That, that didn't add up for me. As far as she knew, the police had no leads on who killed Dr. Malov. I never suspected that it was somebody related to his work, but I thought good detective work would lead you to think that you would cover all aspects. All she could do was wait and focus on what she could control, and that was the magazine. Christy needed to get word to the members of the board that Malov had been murdered. She already had a good notion of what would happen to Infinite Energy now without Dr. Malov at the helm. He did the majority of the writing for the magazine, and you know his voice was very prevalent in the magazine. And so I couldn't fathom initially that the magazine could continue without him. It was a decision that would have to wait. The magazine was Dr. Malov's legacy, and it only felt right to honor that. So the next issue would be a memorial to his life and contributions. Christy got to work right away. I sat down with Joanne and I talked to Ethan and Kim. And so I asked if they would be willing to write. And I contacted a few of his longest, closest friends. The result was a 56-page issue with a picture of Dr. Malov holding a cold fusion cell on the cover. More than a dozen friends, family, and colleagues contributed stories about his life. I was pretty happy with the contributions that we got. I think they were, they were all just different enough from each other. Each one had stories to relate that other people didn't know about. They wrote, as we walked down the beach one day, Professor Martin Fleischman was walking out in the water And Jean turned to me and said, look, Dr. Fleischman is swimming in the fuel tank. I will never forget his joys when something good was about to happen. One time in particular, he just ran down the hallway and kicked up his heels. One time, he brought his accordion into the office and played. Both Ethan and Kim, Jean's children, did write very beautiful pieces for the magazine. I'll never forget the first roller coaster we went on together. As the roller coaster clicked and clacked up to the first summit, 
I looked over at my dad in terror and he smirked, imitating Han Solo. I got a bad feeling about this. Just as we would drop down the hill, he would tell me with wide eyes and enthusiasm, this is what it would feel like to be an astronaut, orbiting the Earth, weightless. He loved to tell the story of how he was visiting the SETI dish and Steven Spielberg was there. As the famous director was leaving, swarmed by reporters and fans, my dad stuck out an E.T. doll, hoping desperately for an autograph, exclaiming, Mr. Spielberg, please sign this. Spielberg chose my dad's doll and signed it. It was on the news that night too. I learned a lot about Gene through the process and it was very, it was a very emotional process. And for me, I mean, I wouldn't say it was cathartic, but it, it, it was useful in processing the grief, I think, in some way. The issue was released in July 2004, three months after Dr. Malov's murder. And soon after the subscribers received it, Christie started fielding a deluge of calls coming into the Infinite Energy office. For some of our subscribers, opening that, you know, that particular issue when it was mailed to them, that was the first knowledge they had that Gene had been killed. Um, so I can only imagine the shock for them, you know. As summer 2004 came to an end, there was still no word of who had killed Dr. Malov. Christie continued on with the magazine and Ethan continued to work with the detectives to solve the case. Kim went back to Seattle heartbroken. He was a huge presence in a room. He was a huge presence in our family. And when he was gone, I remember feeling my, my most, the strongest feeling I had was that there's no one left in the world. There was no one left because he is gone. And it felt really lonely for a really, really long time. It was really hard to create a new normal without, without him there. Everyone wanted answers, but as winter turned to spring and a year passed, no answers were coming until July 2005. That's when two men were arrested and charged with felony murder of Dr. Eugene Malov. Turned out, detectives had begun pursuing these men from the first week of the case. Two days after Dr. Malov's murder, police had set up a roadblock in front of Malov's childhood home. They stopped drivers passing by, hoping they'd find somebody who'd been in the area that night and might have seen something. Maybe they'd seen someone fleeing the scene or Dr. Malov's minivan that had been stolen or any of Dr. Malov's items that had been apparently taken from him that night. This kind of tactic usually goes nowhere. This time, the police got the best thing they could hope for, an eyewitness, someone who'd seen a minivan on the night of the murder. And the license on the minivan was INFNRG, as in infinite energy. He describes the van and said there was a white male in the van drinking juice or milk and he had a soccer or some sort of rag on his hand. Huge piece of evidence. I mean, it's 
we don't put a ton of stock in one-on-one identifications or IDs. Unsolicited. He provided detail. Looked like a really good witness. Police thought they knew who the man might have been. As it happened, two white men had just been arrested in nearby New Britain, Connecticut for stealing a different car. Their names were Joseph Riley and Gary McAvoy. And they gave the police good reason to be suspicious. Just before the murder, they'd been in a town only a half hour south of Norwich. They were on a crack-fueled burglary binge where they'd stolen that car and driven it north before they were picked up. Police said when they found him, Joseph Riley had scratches on his hands and he had something on his shirt, a stain of some kind. Riley had a blood-like substance on his clothing. Then when the investigators pointed out, he threw a cup of coffee on to try to try to destroy. The assumption was that they were passing through knowledge and then they stopped and robbed this man, killed him and then, and then, and then took off to, to New Britain. Police had a theory, but they needed more than that. So they took the witness from the roadblock and put a photo lineup in front of him. The witness eyed each photo until he eventually settled on a single person, Joseph Riley. Riley and McAvoy became the prime suspects, but they insisted they had nothing to do with Malov's murder. Any connection between them and the case was purely circumstantial. Month after month, the investigation dragged on as detectives looked for evidence tying them to the scene. In May 2005, Norwich police asked for help solving the case from a noted forensic expert who had worked on cases involving O.J. Simpson and John Benet Ramsey. Then finally, they caught a break. They found a DNA match for a hair recovered from Malov's stolen van. The lab results said it belonged to Gary McAvoy. That was all investigators needed to charge Gary McAvoy and Joseph Riley with the murder of Eugene Malov. Malov's family felt one step closer to justice. I remember Ethan saying it was a big sigh of relief when I got the call from Lieutenant Menard saying that these guys were arrested. But when Dr. Malov's daughter, Kim, found out, she responded differently. I was kind of trying to come to grips with that it was just a random, completely random robbery. Okay. I, I, I saw their pictures in the newspaper and I just thought, okay. I mean, if that's who they say they think did it. It's 1986, Newark, and Michael Morrison is offered the opportunity of a lifetime. A new job, a fresh start with a secure future as a cop. But Mike has no idea he's about to join what he calls the biggest gang in America. I'm Saren Jones, and this is Black and Blue Behind the Badge, a story about what happens when you have to pick a side. Follow Black and Blue Behind the Badge on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Do you want to hear something spooky? Some monster was standing there. It reminded me of 
Bigfoot. In walks a tall, gray alien. One of the teenage boys started to exhibit signs of textbook demonic possession. I'm Derek Hayes, host of Monsters Among Us podcast. This pure all-white entity staring straight at me. Where there should have been eye sockets, there weren't. Monsters Among Us is an anthology of real paranormal stories told by real witnesses. I never really believed in this blackness monster nonsense, but something very snake-like lifted its head out of the water. A giant black triangle. It was so big that it blotted out the stars. And I saw what looked like a huge monster. I could see the outline of hair. New episodes of Monsters Among Us drop every Thursday. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Somehow I had lost eight whole hours. After Joseph Riley and Gary McAvoy were arrested, they awaited trial in jail for three long years. In 2008, detectives and their eyewitness gathered in court for a probable cause hearing that would determine if a trial should proceed. That's where things started to fall apart. So the witness retracts his identification. So now we got a snag the eyewitness was no longer so sure about what he had seen. That was just the first problem. The next came soon after. The defense attorneys for Riley and McAvoy discovered that the laboratory had made a mistake in the evidence. The only bit of physical evidence investigators had that tied Riley and McAvoy to the crime was the hair sample supposedly found in Malov's van but maybe they didn't have all the facts straight on that either. It was a known, a known pulled sample from his head. They had a search warrant to pull the hair out of his head. And they mixed that up with a piece of hair coming from the van. And then, just like that, the charges against McAvoy and Riley were dropped. The murder of Eugene Malov remained unsolved. You gotta wonder what happened here. Was this just a crazy combination of a confused witness and a major forensic screw-up of some kind? I think people in the department wanted it done. People at the state's attorney's office wanted it done. And there's a lot of pressure. No, no fault to them. It's just that, you know, how do you handle a guy a bag of shit and, and, you know, tell him it smells like roses? You can't. So they did the best they could, and it fell flat. But some people closest to Malov wondered if investigators really did do the best they could. Nothing about that arrest made sense to me. I felt so strongly that they were so stuck on this one idea they had of his death that they, they, they weren't considering anything else. Now they would have to consider everything else, starting from scratch. Dr. Eugene Malov's murder was now a cold case. I mean, I've heard before that a lot of times, more times than not, people who are murdered, it's often by someone they know. Malov's daughter, Kim, had been right all along. Detectives had missed something big. The chief state's attorney's office up in Hartford said, you guys better square this shit away. I feel like the blame got shifted and I'm not quite clear on how that was able to happen. He, he essentially said, you know, no, it wasn't me. Something doesn't seem right here. I'm gonna go down and pay a visit to this guy. 
That's coming up on Crime Waves, Cold Truth. From Cute Code and Faceplant, in association with No Smiling, this is episode six of eight of Crime Waves, Cold Truth. Cold Truth is hosted by me, David Kushner, and based on my article, The Coldest Case. The events in this series are true and actually happened, but some reenactment details are dramatized. Actor Jason Kravitz is the voice of Dr. Malov, and the dialogue is drawn from Malov's extensive writings and speeches. The series is written, reported, and produced by me, David Kushner, Heather Schrering, and Sean Cannon for No Smiling, and Graylin Brashear. Original music and sound design by John Eckhouse. Fact-checking by Rebecca Nelson. Additional writing by Rolf Potts. Managing producer is Daniel Rafe. Marketing lead is Ellie Kotopish. Executive produced by Stephen Canner, Jamie Schutz, and me, David Kushner, for Faceplant. And Rob Herding and David Henning for Q-Code. If you like what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. And tell your friends about us. The next episode will be out in a week. Don't miss it. Be sure to follow Crime Wave's Cold Truth on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Everyone needs a break from the real world. That's why we played games as kids, and that's why we should play games as adults. I'm Troy Lavalley. And I'm Joe O'Brien. And back in 2015, we started a podcast called The Glass Cannon Podcast, a show made up of comedians and actors playing a fantasy role-playing game. And now is the perfect time to start listening because we just started a brand new story. It's basically Lord of the Rings meets Game of Thrones meets X-Files. Search for The Glass Cannon Podcast on your podcast app of choice. Hey, life is hard, so come play pretend with us.